0: Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communication Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. Business Administration in French, Management and Ethics. While these two pairings might strike some as incongruous, and in the second case, even antithetical, they are in fact the undergraduate and graduate subject areas pursued by my esteemed colleague, Professor Kathy Lund Dean of the Economics and Management Department at Gustavus. Kathy received her BA in Business Administration and French from the University of Notre Dame, her Master of Management from Aquinas College, and her PhD in Management and Ethics from St. Louis University. Since 2012, she's been the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Leadership and Ethics at Gustavus, which among other responsibilities has involved her in building the college's brand abroad and growing experiential learning among Gustavus faculty and students. In addition to teaching courses in management and business ethics, Dr. Lundin is a leading scholar and much sought after speaker in those areas with a distinguished research record, including long lists of journal articles, conference presentations and invited talks, as well as two recently co-authored books titled, respectively, The Ethical Professor, and Course Design and Assessment in Engaged Learning. She's the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including two Erskine fellowships from New Zealand, which funded her teaching there at the University of Canterbury. I've been eager to speak with Kathy on the podcast about her research into ethics and professors, and also of particular interest to me, are religious discrimination disputes in organizations and their resolution. Plus, I always enjoy talking with a fellow Chicagolander. So welcome, Kathy, I'm so glad we could finally do this.
1: Greg, it is great to be here, and I'm so excited you're doing these podcasts.
0: Thanks. It's really been fun. Um, I know, you know, because like any place, I suppose, any organization, we do some water cooler talk now and then, but or on committees, but uh, the chance to actually talk for a sustained time about your work is is what makes it so much fun, and not just your work, your background as well. Um, let's start there. Let's start with, uh, so you're like me, you grew up in Chicago or Chicagoland, but tell us a little bit. I grew up in Park Forest. I grew up in a different park. Yeah. Um, uh, but I grew up in Park Forest, so mostly in the south suburbs. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and, and uh, how you came to Notre Dame and how you came to be interested in both uh, business administration and French.
1: Well, you're a south sider. I am a north sider. Uh, uh, so we should technically not be speaking together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I grew up near the Skokie area in Evanston. Most people know where that is. And um, went to the same high school, Maine East High School, that Hillary Rodham Clinton and Mm -hmm. Harrison Ford went to. Those are our our famous alumni from my high school. Nice. Um, And it was a huge and diverse school. And that has been really instructive in, I think, the way now I see the world. And I realize now the world that I grew up in was sort of an early version of some of the issues that we're facing now as a culture in our country. And so, you know, the conversations around diversity and otherness and things, um, in some ways, they don't make a lot of sense because that's the way it's always been in in my world. So grew up there. I have an older sister uh, who also went to Maine East. And Notre Dame was, was sort of a random choice hmm. in that we had I remember just one of those big college recruitment things in our gym, and walking around, and the the recruiters at Notre Dame just looked and said, "Hey, you look like you want to go to Notre Dame." <laughs> and right, I mean, it was that random. And just talking with them, it was the right size school for me. Um, I liked very much the religious tradition at that point, and uh, the rigor of it, and just the campus. You know, if you go to the campus. You, you'll never leave because it's, it's a truly <laughs> lovely place. You know, I mean, I just wants, yeah. like, and, and so that was, you know, that was a really interesting place to go. And I really also enjoyed the chance to take advantage of a liberal arts place. Uh, Cause ultimately Notre Dame is a liberal arts in, uh, institution. And so the French major along with the business major was a really nice way of combining what they did well. And my absolute love of language and um, the ability to go into a, a business environment right after school.
0: Where did where did the love of language come from? Would you already have that from Notre Dame?
1: Yeah, yeah. My sister, uh, who's four years older than I, she started uh, speaking French. And our high school had this unbelievably skilled French teacher, who still holds the leadership position in Alliance Française in Chicago, Madame Steinhardt, and she just built this great program. And we both are fortunate where language comes pretty easily to us. We can hear it pretty well. And just really, you know, I think I think learning another language is in some ways a go, no-go thing. Like you, you have a competency and you love it, or you have to work much harder at it. And we were fortunate that we could hear it and we spoke it a lot together and it was a really uh, a nice source of connection between us.
0: Um, well, it's good. You could speak it behind your parents' back. Maybe, I
1: know. Right. It, we used to just really frustrate them. It was great. I mean, what else does a high school kid do other than sort of annoy their parents, you know? <laughs> well,
0: no, well, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, the religious tradition appealed to you. Was that part of your upbringing? Did you grow up Catholic or was that just?
1: Well, my dad was Catholic. And we had a lot of friends that were Catholic that went to Catholic school. And so I was quite familiar with it. I I think the religious tradition was more, it, it could have been almost any religious tradition. Um, and I'm kind of hoping I don't get a bolt of lightning here. It could have been anything in that it helped think about something bigger than what I was doing and who I was. I think college sure. students by design are relatively narcissistic, and so the the tradition there was thinking outside of yourself, being part of something larger, the idea of service and serving other people, and I think that was really important.
0: Yeah, that's appealing. That's actually one of the things about Gustavus that appealed to me when I was learning about it and, uh, and interviewing here. Um, what about business administration? So help me understand, was, was this like a combined program, French and business administration, or, you, or they were two separate majors? I mean, how did you wind up putting those
1: two together? Yeah, it's, a, it's just a really unique program. It's, it was called the Arts and Letters Program for Administrators, so hmm. ALPA. And you could combine any non-business major with the business core. And um, French was easy. And just easy to choose, I mean, because I just loved it and got to take some courses both at Notre Dame and then uh, St. Mary's College, which is the women's school right across the road. Right. And um, so got just some amazing professors and also was able to take the the very like one, almost one and a half years of the business major. So learning the core, you know, finance and accounting and management and, you know, econ and all of those things that you have to take for right. business. What, what, I was, oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was ultimately really interested in the business world. Um, okay. My sister is a biochemist. My mother was a nurse and my dad was an engineer. And so we didn't really know anything about business. And I was quite curious about, you know, what what do people do? Um, hearing my mom and dad talk about their experiences in the workplace As a result of managerial decisions and workplace culture, although at that time I didn't know that language, but just really thinking about the impact on people that managerial decisions have uh, was super interesting for me.
0: Yeah, I get that. My dad was uh, my my Greek grandfather on my dad's side. He was a barber. And one of my uncles uh, joined that business. Now, my dad became a hairdresser and he ran uh, he he worked for a big organization actually based here in Minneapolis, kind of the forerunner of Regis in some ways. But he also ran a lot of his own salons. Oh, wow. And I remember, um, it was always interesting watching my dad, because my brother and I would work in these salons as the cleanup boys. Or to, you know, Of course you boys. did. Oh, yeah, my gosh. Up, clip on bow ties. And, but I remember being quite interested in observing my dad as as a manager. That's what yes. he, he had, because one of his salons he had, I don't know, I've had a dozen... Uh, you wouldn't have said women, but women working. Anyway, I find that fascinating. You just said something, too, which I, which resonates with me, which is, you know, how, what do people do? I, um, I love that. I just love going behind the scenes, talking to people uh, in all walks of life to learn about what, in fact, goes on. But anyway, so I get I can get that, that attraction. So you graduated with a B.A. in business administration in French. And then did you go right on for the uh, master or did you that when you worked in banking for a time?
1: I did. I got um, I took a job, a couple jobs in different banks, uh, one in Cincinnati and then one in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it was the most interesting training ground. And it it really informs what I tell students now. There's this madness. I don't know where this narrative came from, but the idea that students have to find the perfect job right out of undergrad and they have to find their passion and they should do what their passion tells them and they should never settle And I tell students, of course, you're going to settle. Of course, you're going to do work that's not interesting for you or that you know you don't want to do. But you should think about these first few jobs as somebody paying you to learn and find something, just do something and figure out who you are in a workplace, what kind of management and leadership style appeals to you. What do you like about any organizational setting? What do you dislike about any organizational setting. And I've, I've actually done some post-graduation quasi internships with students where they're in jobs that they don't, they don't really like, but they need something to sort of focus their attention and distract them. And so we do learning objectives, like they're doing an, an internship, like, okay, so what training can you get under your belt? And can you sit in on a hiring Would it be possible for you to sit in on a firing? Um, Could you sit in on a performance appraisal, or have you had your own performance appraisal? What does that look like? And so, helping students think about organizational experiences that will transfer anywhere, right? um, Because there are so much in common in any organizational setting. And so, they, uh, the banking jobs were were really that. I mean, I learned so much about not only just business but the financial industry and and those were not conversations that we had at, at my house growing up so i re- i remember uh the i was with a training group at my first bank and one of my one of my peer groups said well so how much are you putting in your 401k because we had to choose you know those hr forms and i had no idea and i was mm-hmm. like uh I don't know, how much are you putting in your 401k? I mean, I didn't even know that that was a, that was a thing. Right. And so really just learning the way business worked was terrific. And so I waited four years to go back for my master's degree and uh, at Aquinas. And it was, it is my favorite among my three degrees, uh, my master's, because it's not an MBA, it was a master's of management. And it was specifically designed for working managers. and the faculty were by and large, almost all practitioners, all working executives themselves. And they all came from industry. And so I was working during the day in my management job and going to school at night, part time. And I cannot even tell you, Greg, how much I love that. It was I just loved, loved, loved it. It was so applied. Um, I would learn I would learn something in class at night. And my poor employees were totally my guinea pigs to test everything out. Right. So I try some motivational thing and come back to class and be like, wow, that did not work. And then, you know, and we would talk together. It was so it was this supportive group of people kind of all in the same place. And it was it was fabulous. Um, It
0: sounds like a great program.
1: I loved it. It was great, and and so the banks were really my managerial training ground, and well, it's where I really gained an interest um, in both sort of org behavior, which is my doctoral work, and applied ethics in business.
0: Um, okay, that's I was wondering where the um, where the interest in ethics came out of, but also when you so when you started in the in the banking world, I mean, what were you starting as a teller? I mean, did you go right into a management with a with a BA, or how did it
1: work? Yeah. So at the time, um, there, it was a managerial training program that, no. the, that the bank had. And, you know, if there are any listeners out there that have kids that are getting ready to graduate from college, or if students are listening, if there's a training program, grab it because they rotated us among all of the different departments in the bank. So, the um, The the retail side, which is what we think of as branches, the operations side, where everything is processed, the commercial side, which is business loans, um, the wholesale side, which is business to business lending. And so I got to see really all different sides of the bank, and then they would place us. And I ultimately ended up managing one of the largest branches in the system. And I was like 23 years old. (laughs) And, you know, I look, I think back of that and I think, wow, that was crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Why would they ever put a 23 year old in charge of a bank branch? And it was, you know, getting that kind of responsibility quickly uh, is drinking out of a fire hose. And it also, I think, provoked a way of being thoughtful about the way money And our financial industry impacts people on a very, very visceral and and very day to day basis. Um, And so uh, I think that it's informed much of my work now in the applied ethics field because I think certainly our financial industry needs a lot of help. And I think (laughs) that getting people in that industry to think differently about their impacts. Has to be the way forward, because uh, we don't need another two thousand
0: no. and eight. yeah, one doesn't think of ethics and financial industry in the same breath, typically. But.
1: one one might not. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's one of my one of my major goals and charges here at Gustavus um, is helping helping think about that intersection of of money and the financial services and business. And how do we do this well? How do we do it better than we've been doing it?
0: Um, doing you know, that, you've been doing that with the with the you're the advisor to an to an investment club, right, on campus?
1: Yes, the Scone Investment Club. So the club started in the '90s with an initial investment of about a hundred about a hundred thousand by Terry Scone, and there are lots of these types of types of clubs across the country at other schools. Um, And the idea is using real money and a real platform to learn about investing. and, um, And also the way Terry Scone set up our club is quite unique that there's a philanthropy piece of it. And so every year we give money back. And so by next month, the club will have given back about seventy thousand oh, dollars in scholarship money over the last nine years.
0: Wow! Practica and, Stavis, I assume. I'm sorry. Practica Gustavus I, I assume
1: is what. You yes, mean. yes, it's it's directly to scholarships. You know, I talk with the um, the student financial office each year, and we we talk about what the parameters are of those scholarships, and and then they get awarded, and you know, I've, we have about a quarter million dollars right now under investment. And, you know, I've really seen a steady progression in the way the students view the idea of stewardship, um, which I think is really the game changer in terms of business. Thinking about it in terms of a longer term orientation, which is, you know, we could talk about that later. But the, the idea of stewarding is very different than the idea of owning. Right. And I've seen a really steady progression in the way the students understand that, you know, we put in a social responsibility clause a few years back and we've made trades based on those parameters. Um, And they're doing, you know, the students are taking it really seriously. They're doing a great job building a portfolio for the long term. Uh, They want to make sure it can benefit other students. And they, they're just, they take it so seriously and they are so excited about giving back. Like they are genuinely so excited about the idea of giving back and Fantastic. yeah
0: and also contributing obviously to to what some call a culture of philanthropy among you know all everybody at the students as well and then even when they go on to become alums of course that's really cool i did not i knew about the club but i didn't know about that that dimension of it and also you're as you're saying you know i mean Growing wealth and being good stewards are not, you know, mutually exclusive, right? They are not. They, are not. they are not.
1: Yeah, they are not.
0: The other thing you said that I want to get get into the um, your work on ethics and the, and the professors, which we are. But before we do that, just backtrack a little bit because I think what you said earlier about, you know, this is this is regular listeners to the podcast know this has been a the theme of this podcast, not intentional, but the the idea that students feel or, you know, some students, the reality, not the idea that some students feel, parents feel they must have it all figured out when they enter. What's my major going to be? Because I want to do this. It's just, it's nutty and it's not the case, right? And as you're suggesting, be open to uh, experiences, to taking a job, right? That, you know, isn't going to be the rest of your life, but you can learn so much from it as you did in the, uh, through the, through the banking uh, world uh, at a young age. <laughs> so yes. I think it's important. The, um, and you're just another, I love to cite concrete examples to our students and I will be citing your example along with the others. But so you got into this work, which I find, I just sounds really interesting. I haven't read the book yet. I want to, it came out, I think it came out this year, 2020 or it came, the, pretty, the yeah. ethics yeah. book. Yeah.
1: That was, it's 2018 yeah. and, um, sure. That's that was. Right. It was the end of 2018, and then um, it's being translated into the Spanish language edition has been delayed a little bit with COVID, but that will come out next year. And we're also under contract with the University of Peking Press oh, wow. for it to be translated into Chinese.
0: All right, there's and, a, <laughs> That's great.
1: Yeah, so we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Co-authors, but talk to me a little bit about or talk to us, the listeners as well, of course, about um, you know, what that what that. Book is about what 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 the research uh, was that went into it and what what your what your findings are what you hope readers will will, will get out of it.
1: Yeah, so um, Lorraine Eden and Paul Vailer of uh, Texas A and M and the University of Minnesota, respectively, are my co-authors, and we got together at our big professional association, the Academy of Management, as part of the an initiative on ethics education. And we were asked to blog about different issues, very applied, again, issues that we encounter, ethical issues that we encounter in our profession. And so particularly those things that we don't think about as having ethical dimensions. And so our work is generally the sort of the three-legged stool, which is the research, teaching, and professional life. And so we traded off a lot. I I generally wrote more about the ethics in teaching. So it wasn't teaching ethics as a discipline. It was ethical issues in the practice of teaching and blogging. That was my first experience blogging in um, that writing form. And it it was so much fun to write. You don't have to put it all in citations and <laughs> this very careful academic writing style. It was, it it's, was very personal.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a, nice to, nice to be free of those academic disciplinary constraints when writing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you, you were blogging. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
1: So, and then we decided, um, someone suggested to us that it would be a great book. And so we put some of the blog posts, we edited them and and got a publisher and it's been Really interesting to see the feedback. Um, there, we wanted them to be each chapter to be very short. We have sort of a, a catalyst issue. Each each chapter has a a particular issue, and then we have some discussion questions. We have some additional resources. It's things I think we don't really talk about in the academy, and bringing things into the light and Being willing to talk about some of our dirty laundry is the only way really we're going to get better at this. And so things like um, how should graduate students and their advisors work together? You know, there are inherent power issues that create de facto ethical issues, especially when students graduate. Uh, We know people whose advisors still insist on being co-authors on papers years after the, the student has graduated. And what do you do about author order? What do you do about, you know, massaging data, or as we say, sort of beating the data into submission, mining the data, you know, where, where's that line? So there's lots of things about the research we do, but the teaching one, I think is particularly interesting for me, having encountered issues of, for example, equity. How, how are you how can you treat students fairly and yet understand the different the different places and spaces they come from? And so, how do you think about exceptions in the classroom? How do you think about using your position of power inherently in the classroom? And so, it, it was really interesting to think about the issues that we encountered all the time. And it was another really timely thing, you know, like my master's degree, I would encounter an issue with a student and then I could blog about it like right away. And so it was really fresh and it was uh, very timely and just really gave a platform as a writer to think through pretty complicated issues.
0: You know, and it's, it's—I mean—it's even more timely, I would argue, with COVID, the pandemic, because there is all this blogging, writing, talking about—you um, know—what what are our obligations as professors? I'm talking now about higher ed, and to our students, um, to ourselves, to our institutions at this moment, right? So, for example, should I? Is it is it ethical <laughs> to 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 assign grades right, right under, under the current circumstances? I mean, so there. I mean, I, I wrestle with that uh, a lot, like not like everybody right now. I mean, to what what to what extent must I should I alter my expectations given the realities students are uh, facing right now? Um, you know, which are which are anxiety inducing for, for so many of our students to, to say the least. Um,
1: so I think I can, everything, everything that's happening with COVID is an ethical issue. Honestly, Greg, I agree with you 100%. There was an interesting conversation that was floating around about forcing students to turn their cameras on. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, yeah. what is that? Is that the right thing to do? And yeah. we want our students to engage. And should we... I, The idea of forcing someone to turn a camera on seems nonsensical to me, given what we know, given what we learned last spring about some of the surprising things our our students bring. I think we learned a lot about access. I think we learned a lot about our assumptions of Internet access. I think we learned a lot about the assumptions of the home life. That's right. You know, food security, medicine security Uh, safety. We've learned a lot about where our students were coming from. And, and yet in the interest of engaging students, I I think it came from a good place, but I think it's also one of those great issues where thinking through the implications of what you, what you want to do, it's required. It's absolutely required. You know, and I love your your catalyst questions you just said, you know, should we assign grades? You know, what do we owe students? What's our, what's our obligation to students right now? And all of those are inherently, inherently ethical issues.
0: Agree. Yeah. And they're not, I mean, I go back and forth in my own head. Um, you know, and I, was, I was just thinking in some cases, I would like, could I force you to turn your camera off, please? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 Wrong, I you. <laughs> so I'm trying to, yeah.
1: Well, um, and, you know, what do we owe students if, if they get sick? How do we how do we keep them safe? You know, if students are afraid, if they don't want to come to campus, I think Estavis has done among the, the has created among the best set of policies that I've seen among many different institutions that, that I interact with. And some, some schools have not done this well. And, um, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think we have done it well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. You're grateful. I've said this before on, on different episodes of this podcast, grateful that I was not forced by my institution, uh, Gustavus to, you know, teach online or teach in person, right. Or hybrid. I mean, that, that, we, we have some latitude, which not all... Not all professors do. I mean, I've chosen in my own case to teach all online again with a great deal of regret, but there it is. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, I think too about the students who are doing the work and then students who, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, this is an ethical issue too. I mean, students I've had before that I know tend not to do the work and, I'm you know, am I really going to cut them as much slack as maybe I should be and am I being fair to the other students? So, yeah, it's interesting to think about how, how so much of what we do, everything we do really is is informed by ethical decisions, whether we're aware of it or not.
1: Yeah, I th- and it's that awareness piece. And I think that was really the key for, for all of us in writing that book, because we've all seen students, graduate students, um, not progress. We've all seen people flame out because of not the right response. To an ethical issue, and I think there's just something we don't talk about in graduate schools, and we're not talking about the way to think through some of these issues um, with yeah. with some really, I mean, career impacting kinds of kinds of outcomes. Yeah.
0: Right. I'm just thinking it should be required reading uh, in a graduate program.
1: (laughs) Well, we think so, too. Right. But, you know, it's we're we're trying to get it through the professional associations and um, into some graduate programs and just create a space where people can talk about it in a risk free way. And um, before before it hits them in real life. um, Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's talk about so-called real life uh, a little bit more and orga- orga- organizations and ethics. I mean, you know, I don't know. Obviously, this is a huge topic, but just your sense of, uh, you know, we mentioned the financial industry, but, you know, every industry, right, every organization has to deal with or should deal with, doesn't always, ethical uh, issues. Um, what's your sense of how well uh, the, 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 the for-profit sector is doing on that? There's this phrase corporate social responsibility, for example. Uh, I know an alum who was a history major who got involved with that through, uh, working for target. I mean, how, how seriously are organizations taking ethics? Do you think
1: that is a, a very big question and it has a, I think a massive range, mm-hmm. um, in my, so let me preface that because it's a, it's the essential, like, it's the essential question, I think. Uh, in my graduate program at St. Louis U, we, we had a business school major, so organizational behavior, and it had to be supplemented by a formal minor. You had to register for a formal minor, and it was preferably out of the business school. Um, and so, again, having been in the financial industry, and I had also owned a, a small partnership firm, um, I really wanted to be able to frame business within sort of the great thinkers of ethics and, and SLU is a Jesuit institution. So when you do ethics, you go to the philosophy department and it was, it was like toggling between two different planets. Um, (laughs) You know, the business school come to find out philosophy departments don't like PowerPoint. Like maybe they do now, but back then it was completely, completely unacceptable. (laughs) And, and it was so interesting, but I left the courses I took there completely informed the way I think about business's place in the world now and how to have conversations that are yes and. So corporations make money. You need to make money. Corporations create value. It drives really our whole way of living. Um, and corporations now hold more collective power than most governments on the planet. Exactly. Um, and so there's a responsibility in that power as corporations' resources and impacts have grown that has to be consistently drawn upon. And you know, I think there's a great Bill. There's a great Bill. Bill Gates quote. Um, he says, "When you have money in hand, only you forget who you are." Hmm. And uh, and I think that's true. And so kind of to address your question, I, I want to make the distinction that I think is really important between capitalism as a system and corporatism as what has become a pretty dysfunctional way of life and a dysfunctional way of thinking about stewardship. Capitalism, capitalism is the most successful economic system in human history. Um, it's, it's a very complex thing. And if you look at how capitalism has, has changed people's trajectories all over the planet, um, they ch- it's it's helped change that very grinding and sort of systematic poverty, they turning that into micro-enterprising. Um, we've got lots of new organizational forms that are out there, like the Benefit Corporation, which... Is a corporate form that allows philanthropy as you know part of their profit making. Um, what they do with their profits, which is something that regular corporations are very limited in what they're able to do legally. Yes. Um, there's the social entrepreneurship model where they're making money. Like social entrepreneurs make money um, using business models, and and they're designed to really fix truly entrenched social problems. That you know, a hundred years of charity um, and NGOs can't fix. You know, we've got we've got social entrepreneur corporations creating clean water. They're they're creating corporations that increase healthcare access. Um, they're helping get rid of pollution. They're doing renewable energy innovations. You know, using the the profit seeking model in different ways. Is really the future. Um, They're making money. I mean, for sure, these are for-profit organizations. But the way they use the value they create and the type of products they make are fundamentally different. They're fundamentally changing our world. I just read about uh, an organization called New Light Technologies, and I I just think these people are geniuses. They've created an actually carbon negative type of plastic that it's for. You know, knives and forks and plates, and you can put it in your dishwasher, um, but if it ends up in the ocean, the microbes eat this product and it dissolves. Yeah. And it's feeding these microbes and it's dissolving in the ocean. And so it's, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. Um, they're going to make money and they're going to help fix the plastic issue in oceans and so we have all of these forms of companies and business that are finally getting on board it, it's beyond it's beyond corporate social responsibility so csr is essentially a a thought that you run the company status quo and then you help with social issues with part of the profits that you make, to be a good citizen.
0: Okay.
1: That's, that's one way of doing it. I think the future of corporate structures and really the types of companies our students, like this generation, want to work in are the ones that are inherently, as part of their functional design, addressing issues. And that's, where, that's, like, that's, the, that's the intersection with sustainability. Um, you know, when we move the, I think, this is this is me, and based on all of the work that I've seen, I think the key issue between capitalism and corporatism is the time orientation. Uh, we simply have to stop thinking about quarterly earnings, quarterly bonuses, quarterly output. You know, when you move that timeline out 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, all of your activities change. Your priorities change. The way you use your organizational resources totally changes.
0: That is so important because there's so much. I mean, you know, there's just so much emphasis on the short term, right? Yes. Make money now for this quarter. Now you you sound to me, and you're making me feel good, by the way. Oh, good. You sound optimistic about this uh, this new form. And, you know, you said something important, too, and make sure listeners understand that this is this is not a corporation engaging in the status quo and doing some good work for the community. This is, as you said, something it's, 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 it's built into the design of the, yes. Of the corporation. Yes. It's yes. Work. And what what makes you optimistic that that this is the future? I mean, I mean, is this going to change, you know, Fortune 500 companies, do you think? Or is it just going to be all these sort of micro, smaller corporations engaged in this?
1: No, it, it has to be. Um, it has to be everybody. And there is a great TED Talk, one of our uh, huge strategic titans. He literally, I can see it on my, my bookshelf. He wrote the book on corporate strategy. His name is Michael Porter. He makes a compelling argument for why sustainability has to be built in as a sustainable competitive advantage because people are finding better ways of making a product that accrue to the bottom line. And so one of the one of the core outcomes in the set of assignments that we do in the business ethics course is helping students make the business case for doing something right. And so you, you, you can say, you know, this is the right thing to do. This is the moral thing to do. And, you know, we've had a couple hundred years of that and it really hasn't moved the needle. What you have to appeal to is the idea That doing the right thing actually makes business sense. So, right? right? I mean, sustainability accrues significant cost savings, both on the front end in terms of getting the raw materials and increasingly on the back end when you're disposing of things. And so, how can we reuse these things? There's inherent cost savings there. So, there is an organization, one of my favorite case examples is interface flooring and they are the world's largest supplier of uh, actually the the type the type of carpeting that we all probably have in our offices that prefab um uh, you know squares uh, yeah. of carpet they they have found a way and carpet is very petroleum intensive the old way of making it it was used a lot of lot of oil. It was almost impossible to break down the waste and the pollution were gargantuan. But the owner and the founder of that firm decided we're not doing that anymore. And so they are going to be um, completely renewable energy. I think they may have already I think they may have already gotten there. Zero waste, zero waste with these products and he says it saved them during the recession because they were so efficient and they had learned how to how to manufacture this very durable product for less money and they didn't have the cost structure of again disposal and and waste and all those things and he said the competitive advantage that that gave them literally saved the company in the downturn and so what Porter says and this is this is why I'm hopeful Greg is that once we build in the idea that sustainability is functional that there is the business case it's a it's a business imperative that you start making things in a sustainable way as a competitive advantage that's that's going to move the needle you know Walmart Walmart isn't stocking responsibly harvested or farmed food or organics because of an ethical position. Let's let's make no mistake about that. They're doing it because customers demand that. Exactly. And, and it's accrued to their bottom line.
0: That's right. Okay. And that touches on my my next question. I think I know what you're going to see. Your answer is probably yes, but that this is this is scalable up to a huge corporate like Amazon or Walmart. This is I mean, I guess Amazon's at least rhetorically making moves in this direction. This isn't just going to be limited to small uh companies, boutique
1: companies or whatever. No, it, it can't be. Yeah. Um it it can't be. You know, we have companies like Mars Incorporated. Um yes, the the MM company. Yeah. <laughs> um you should see their website. They are they are unapologetically all involved in social issues and we're gonna see more organizations like that there's this very radical question out there and it's gaining a lot of steam. Um, and it's really moving from sort of, so the radical question actually is how much profit is enough? And that type of question, <laughs> right? That type of question was you know, one where you would never raise it. And now it's a legitimate normative ethical question. How much is enough? Um, who are the other stakeholders other than shareholders? You know, who else do we need to be worried about here? We've got activist shareholders that are—they're just not putting up with it anymore. They don't want to read about the terrible things that companies are doing, and so shareholders are getting very, very savvy. They're banding together and demanding these kinds of changes. And, and so we is a
0: radical question. Sorry, that is the radical question. It's the
1: radical question. You know, how much of what we're able to earn do we keep before it has to be shared? Right. And what kind of work life, what kind of work environment do we owe people? Um, and, and those are normative questions. Those are normative ethical questions.
0: Neither they're, they're wrapped up in this question of, uh, you know, what, what is progress, right? So right. is progress only an economy, for example, that is growing at a certain rate every year, even if that ultimately is not sustainable for planet earth, <laughs> for example. Right. The, it, 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 I mean, it shows you how difficult this has been to say that, you know, and it is a radical question. I agree with you, but the, the, the fact that to ask that question is radical tells us, you know, wow.
1: <laughs> have, right, right, wow. right. But I also think, you know, we've got, we've got so much more awareness of those success stories. And, you know, I, I've even seen it in the last like 10 or 15 years, the idea that there is a limit and the idea that, you know, it used to be CSR, social responsibility was the, the only way into this conversation and now you get you know again companies like new light they're going to make a gazillion dollars and they are going to fix an entrenched problem we simply can't fix without innovation and um, it it's really it's 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 just amazing to me to, well, I'm go to buy see my, what's happening
0: i want to buy michael porter's book to reinforce the optimism you're uh, <laughs> you're well
1: even you know his newer work is in healthcare Huh. And, you know, it's a completely unsustainable model. Yes. And so how can we make, you know, in the Nobel conference this year, how can we make these dramatic innovations scalable? And yesterday I was listening to these speakers and I was able to grab some screenshots. Much of the conversation is about scalable uh, engineering, scalable manufacturing
0: the current conference on the Nobel conference on cancer and on uh, cancer,
1: yes, on these on these very exotic and and hugely expensive treatments. How do you scale that? And yeah. the conversations they were saying it's exactly what we talk about yes. when we talk about manufacturing. Well, it's, it's like, exactly the same thing.
0: I, I'm nodding, and my body is nodding. Absolutely, I was thinking of you. I mean, knowing we were going to speak to yes. I had the exact same thought. What am am I listening to here? I'm listening to, uh, you know, a scientist uh, or or doctor, both, talking about manufacturing, right? Whether it's manufacturing, but it's manufacturing cells. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's
1: amazing. Like, it makes my head
0: explode. Yeah, exactly. It's the exact same uh, issues. I I loved it. Um, It is.
1: It is. And, you know, I think that this is the cap, like – this is the capitalism right now with this enormous problem of inequality. This is the one Adam Smith feared, and I, and I used to say Adam Smith wouldn't recognize the system that we have at work today, but but that's actually wrong. He he certainly recognizes it because he talks about his worst fear for the capitalist system in chapter one, like page sixty or 40. You know he he talks about some of the problems that are inherent in this system, you know, the wealth compression, worker alienation, wealth hoarding, you know, wage stagnation, um, loss of worker power and voice. Like it's all there. It's all, all there. there right in chapter one. Right, what, and seven,
0: so... Six, I think is when that comes out, maybe something like that. His book. It's all there, yeah.
1: It's, it's all there. And so when I tell students, you know, when they say, you know this is not capitalism i i i say look you know adam smith saw this happening 300 years ago and so you need to read that go back to the source and see what he was worried about and i think again gaining it's gaining so much more awareness that one it's destabilizing as a society to have so much wealth compression and and two there are other models like we can do this um and so I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. They're very entrepreneurial, this generation. They're the ones driving this. And they're deciding, I don't want to work in a company that pollutes streams. I don't want to work in those companies. I want to be part of a solution. Um, and you mentioned Amazon. Um, I, I do travel courses where I connect students with local alumni groups in the country. And one of our, one of our J-term courses was Seattle. And we have lovely alumni at Amazon, and the amount of energy and time and research that they're spending getting rid of their footprint because, of course, they know they have a huge, huge, huge footprint. It's It'll be there. They will find a way where it's either carbon neutral or carbon negative. Hmm. And it's not going to be long from now. It's not going to be long from now. And they will set the stage yeah. and completely set the standard for everybody else.
0: Time is, you know, don't want to sound gloomy, but not not on our side.
1: It's not. No.
0: No. You know, this is, I mean, I could go on for another hour just about this, but um, it's fascinating. The, uh, uh, by the way, my sister-in-law works for Amazon. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's, amazing.
1: it's amazing. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I do want to say a little bit about uh, I know. I know you're. Re- you're not doing as much research in this area. You were telling me before we started recording, but but your work on religious discrimination uh, within organizations and, and, and the resolution of, of such discrimination disputes, you've done a TED talk on that, which I urge people to find. Um, you know, for me, what, what, what I, I remember reading about. Uh, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but you know, okay, organizations where there were sort of required. Bible study or, or oh yeah um, you know just <laughs> terrified of that I mean, how much how much of this is I mean people might people listening some people might listening might think you know we're talking about your inability to uh, be a Christian right that's one of the one of the narratives right that Christianity is under attack but what, what do you mean by religious discrimination what's your work been about um, if you could give us a a brief summary.
1: <laughs> I, I can. It's, it's some of the most interesting work that I've done um, thus far. And we, we wanted to look empirically at what was happening in organizations in terms of religious expression. There, there used to be a non-work self and a work self, right? We, we would compartmentalize certain things that were taboo or unacceptable in the workplace. And religion used to be one of those. Uh, Having children was another one of those Um, marital status, you know, all of those things, you were supposed to bring this sanitized version of yourself into the workplace. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we decided, you know, we're, we're not going to do that. That's too hard. And so we, we bring ourselves into organizations, and that's created a lot more challenge managerial challenge in managing that kind of diversity. Uh, And so we're thinking about religious expression and religious identity as part of diversity initiatives and organizations. And I was really curious, I, I wrote, part of my dissertation was about this, but I was really curious about how how is this working? How is religious expression working after 9-11? Hmm. And um, so the data, and I do not recommend this. I took <laughs> all of the Title Seven legal decisions on religious discrimination disputes from uh, just prior to 9-11, so I think, you know, January of 2000, um, up through, I think I had about 14 years of data, and analyzed those for what was actually happening in the case. You know, what were the case facts? Who was being discriminated against? What was the form of discrimination? And what was the remedy? And I used the district courts which is the level just below the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court hears so few cases. Sure. So it's essentially, you know, the end of the line in many of these is de facto, our our circuit courts or our district courts. Mm-hmm. And it, wa- it was so interesting. Um, after 9-11, f- religious discrimination disputes skyrocketed. It was the The fastest growing form of Title VII discrimination. But what we found in the data was that our worst behaviors and our our terrible behaviors seem to be reserved for Muslim employees, and that may seem obvious again, particularly in in a 9/11 world, a post 9/11 world. But it hasn't changed, and we are treating our Muslim colleagues in the workplace really terribly. Um, and the second piece, which I absolutely did not see coming, we didn't even theorize this, was the, the level of anti-Semitism. Yeah. And we saw huge amounts of anti-Semitism in the workplace. and And so we really concluded a couple of things. Number one, Christianity is not under attack. Um, and in fact, we found no cases in which the plaintiff uh, was a Christian saying that they were being discriminated against in in some of these behavioral ways, like profanity and retribution, and sometimes even physical altercations, mm. um, name calling. Um, making sure they didn't get promoted, all of these negative negative outcomes. We didn't find any cases where it was Christianity that was under attack, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting because, as you said, the narrative is you can't be a Christian in in the workplace anymore. Right. Um, And we did not find empirical support for that. But I think the biggest issue that we found was that culturally, we're just not set up for – Islam and by that I mean Title VII protects our religious our, our religious expression in the workplace. But because' we're, we're such an individualistic nation, we're the most individualistic nation on earth, according to a couple of typologies, we, we view the world through the lens of an individual rather than as part of a group. Um, our orientation is not toward impact on a group of my behavior, our orientation is how should I individually behave? And, um, you know, if you look at our Bill of Rights, like we're set up as an individually rights giving country, right? So, but Islam is a fundamentally group based experience. And so it's nonsensical for them to say something like, um, I need to be accommodated so I can pray, and I'm the only one. And so you get situations where, you have a group of Muslim employees and they're all needing to do the same thing at the same time. We're not set up for that. There are no protections for that because then it becomes an undue hardship on the company to accommodate that. That's, that's the baseline. And so we have to really rethink the way we consider religious expression to accommodate more group based kinds of expressions. Title VII just isn't up for it. Right. You know, that's not the way Title VII was set up. And so it's no wonder that Muslim employees are having these experiences of not being accommodated because we haven't figured that out yet. I'm not saying that the behavior that they're experiencing is because of the law. Right. That's not right. People are being genuinely terrible to them.
0: Yeah.
1: But our laws aren't keeping up in a way that will protect them. And and that's really the upshot of it is we have to think differently about who we are in terms of religious expression and bring them under the umbrella of our very traditionally individually experienced type of of religious faith traditions.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Both the findings and, and the way in which it's it's cultural. Um, yes, very individual versus the group. What are our our corporations at least acknowledging this, or doing, do you know, or, do, or making the efforts along? Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, one of the one of the big exemplars uh, is, is actually Golden Plump um, out in the western part of our state, where some of the bigger issues are where you have large groups of Muslim employees working in a, in a factory or a processing or or an environment like that that relies on a line. On, on an assembly line, and Golden Plump first sort sort of went the the uh, the typical route of firing people or or not accommodating them, and through some dialogue and through some intervention, figured out a way around it, um, staggering staggering people at different times, um, putting in non-Muslim employees so that the line can continue. Changing the, changing the pace of work to accommodate those prayer times. And so the only way this is going to be fixed at this point are those kinds of efforts, those community-based, dialogical, how can we create a win-win solution where infrastructure in our country doesn't really give us any ways of, of managing that. And so it's really the will of the organization. But we we do have some exemplars that are figuring this out.
0: Yeah, that's neat. I didn't know about Golden Plump. And, you know, this this hit me powerfully one day. Um, I'm I'm, I'm in a grocery store parking lot here in Minneapolis and a cab whips into the parking lot and and the uh, driver gets out and it gets into the, you know, open space and Begins to pray. Oh, Oh, my word! Yeah. Right. First time. What's going on? Yeah. (laughs) But it it hit me. I mean, I began to wonder. Yeah. So you're on the job, and how do you do that? Right. I mean, and it's it's different, right? It's different than if you're on an assembly line, let's say, versus uh, an
1: office setting. So. Yeah, I mean, in an office, we can accommodate. Like we, it's been, I think, for the most part, generally non-controversial to be able to accommodate individual prayer needs. It's when you get groups of people. And again, our country, we're not very good at groups. We're not very we're not very good at thinking about impact on a group level culturally. And that's when that's when we we need some workarounds.
0: Um, Fascinating. You've done yeah. some interesting research. Yeah. Um, I could, you know, as always keep talking about some yeah. issues are Right. Race. Yeah. Um, by way of closing, I want to give you a chance to to make a case for. I mean, you're you're you you really an embodiment of the case for this. But for the liberal arts and the the, the econ management uh, program, I mean, why have an econ management program at a liberal arts institution? Why does that Why is that important? Do you think? What's your What's your sales pitch for it? Uh, elevator pitch.
1: Having been prior to Gustavus only in business schools. I um, my my all of my education is in business schools I was at uh, Idaho State University for ten years prior to this in a business school and I think the conversations that we can have in a liberal arts place are different and and that's not to say other other places aren't having these conversations it's just that the liberal arts are set up to having these conversations and so um, I think One of the interesting conversations you can have with students is thinking about, you know, what is Aristotle telling us about virtues? You know, what is Rawls telling us about the nature of fairness? And then giving students live examples and having them work through some of the difficulties of using this, you know, time-honored kind of thinking in real life kinds of situations. And so we talk about, for example, um, recently in the ethics course, we talked about the ethics around using DNA, you know, those DNA databases to catch cold case criminals, you know, the Golden Gate killer that made a a huge splash. There've been a, a number of very high profile arrests in cold cases due to using DNA. And so we look at that as, you know, from a utility perspective, if my only outcome is getting the arrest, it doesn't matter that that those databases weren't supposed to be used for that. It doesn't matter how I get DNA from family members, for example, who've been lied to, so I can get the swab and I can build a genealogy that allows me to arrest uh, one of their children, for example, for the murder. Because I get the arrest and that's ethical. And then we look at it from a different perspective. You know, is deception okay? You know, what do you owe people in allowing them to know how their DNA is being used? Um, I think we've already hit the critical mass that we need of DNA profiles where everybody on the planet can be identified from a genealogical perspective. we, we can do that now. We can we can build a genealogy for everybody based on the number of people who have already uploaded their their DNA samples. And so what are the issues with that? You know, do, what about, is there reasonable expectation of privacy? You know, what does that mean? And helping students see that things on the face of it, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to catch the serial killer. That's awesome. It's a lot more complex about that or than that, in thinking through the the pluses and minuses, if you will. And the course is designed to have them think about their values, which is a very liberal arts thing. What's important to you? What's your priority? And how can you make decisions when you get into an organizational setting that you can you can supply a rationale for? You know, not everybody's going to agree with you of course but that's not the goal the goal is for you to be able to build a cogent rationale for making the decisions that you do by experiencing them experiencing them now and having a chance to think about them before you actually encounter them and that is the liberal arts environment allows that space and encourages that space of diving much more deeply into the why of a situation rather than Focusing only sort of on the solution, yeah, you know,
0: right. That no, and the the emphasis at Gustavus, you know, maybe at any liberal arts institution, but it's explicitly so at our institution. Uh, I mean, it's in our sense of ourselves that emphasis on social justice, on community. Um, you know, and I again, I, I'm still a believer. Uh, I know in reality, people can go to a liberal arts college and take a bunch of ethics courses and still wind up doing terrible things in life. But still, yes. I think um, I, I think you make the case uh, the case well. Um, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, oh. This and is great. We,
1: this is the best part of my day, Greg. Thank uh, you for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. I've wanted to talk to you about this for so long. It's so interesting. Um, we'll see you back on campus at some point. <laughs> cool. I know. And uh, uh, everyone should should uh, read uh, Professor Lundeen's book. On, uh, well, everyone in academia, at least, uh, the ethical professor, and I will as well. Uh, so thanks so much. Take good care.
1: You too. Thanks, yeah. Greg. Have bye a great bye.
0: one. Take care. Bye-bye.